Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Open Apple Podcast, and this is show number nine. Today is November 8th, 2011. My name is Mike McGinnis, and as always with me is my co-host, Ken Gagney. Hello, Mike. How are you this evening? I'm doing well, Ken. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. I'm happy to be recording another show. It, we uh, have had the first snowfall of the season here in New England, but here in the recording studio with all this equipment, it is sweltering hot. I'm happy and sad for you. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> sure. But you're adjusting to, to life back in uh, uh, Massachusetts. And elsewhere, actually. I just drove in last night from uh, Rochester, New York. I was in upstate New York most of the weekend. And uh, what were you doing there? A couple of things. Apple II community member Peter Watson, infamous author of the MUG NDA, which is a set of MS-DOS utilities, is in Syracuse this weekend. Actually, today's his birthday. Happy birthday, Peter. But he was in Syracuse because, for fun, he competitively plays laser tag, and they were having a tournament in Syracuse. So he flew all the way up from Melbourne, Australia. Wow, that's, that's dedication. That's hardcore. It is. Now, isn't Syracuse the home of another Apple II user? That's true. Andy Malloy lives in Syracuse. The three of us got together for dinner. Andy and Peter had never met before, but I first met Peter when I was in Australia for several months back in 2000. And then he and his wife were up in Boston last October. So I just saw them last year after a decade. And now it's two years in a row. And I saw Andy this weekend for the seventh time this year, which is unprecedented. That's uh, quite a bit of FaceTime. <laughs> and and not the iOS version either. No, not the iOS version. Uh, so I hung out with the two of them. And then I continued westward to Rochester, New York, where I went to the International Center for the History of Electronic Games, which is part of the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester. That sounds like fun. It's a very cool place. They are dedicated to the history of all forms of entertainment, from hula hoops to board games to comic books to, of course, electronic games. They have a working arcade there, a variety of displays of uh, different artifacts, and I was interviewing a couple of the curators there as well as dropping off some donated materials from Chris Lackey, who we've had on the show before and who is the designer of the Kansas Fest website. Okay, so so this museum is something that, that you would recommend people get to see if they can. Yeah, if they're passing through upstate New York, I think it's definitely worth a visit. Whether or not you're into any one of the things I mentioned, like comic books or video games, each display that they have is on its own worth checking out. So there's probably going to be something there for you, especially if you have kids, but it's not just for kids either. It's not a specific manufacturer that they're dedicated to. It's it's every kind of game. When the museum was first founded several decades ago, they were focused on the impact of industrialization on forms of play. And after being open for a couple of years with that mission, they saw their attendance dwindling and dwindling. So they're like, oh, we need to refocus. So they said, let's, let's do the history of play. And then their attendance went up and up and up. I, I can't say that I'm surprised by that. <laughs> no, not really. What about you? Been up to anything funky lately? Nope, nope. Just kind of getting ready for the um, for the upcoming snowboarding season. Are you a snowboarder? I am. It's been a few years, but uh, I kind of felt the need to get back to that. So I've got my, my season pass to several of the ski resorts around here, and I'm looking forward to hitting the slopes. Excellent. Well, you're certainly in a good part of the country to go snowboarding. Uh, yeah, I consider myself fortunate for that. Well, before we get on to the show and introduce this month's guest, we have some administrivia to go through, especially some reader feedback. First of all, on a technical point, we got 
an email from Andrew Rowan saying that on the last episode, my audio volume was low. Me personally, everybody else was fine. And Wade Clark wrote in with a similar sentiment, except he said that my audio volume started off fine and then got lower as the show went on. That may certainly be the case. As I think I mentioned in the last episode, we hadn't used this particular hardware setup in three or four months, so some settings may have changed. But we're certainly going to pay more attention to that this month so that everybody sounds a little bit more equal. I apologize for any listening difficulties with episode number nine. Andrew Rowan also wrote in asking, how do you pronounce the name of the operating system that's spelled P-R-O-D-O-S? Is it Prodos or Prodos? I'd always pronounce it as Prodos. I didn't know there was another pronunciation until our last guest. Right. And Prodos is one of those words that doesn't come up in conversation a lot. So you don't have many opportunities to pronounce it as opposed to simply spelling it. But once Andrew brought it up, I got to thinking the villain in the Portal video games from Steam or from Valve, her name is spelled G-L-A-D-O-S, and I always pronounce it GLaDOS. Huh. I had always pronounced it like I pronounced Prodos, GLaDOS. Huh. Uh, I figured that because it, the O in that was short for operating, that it was pronounced OS. You know, I did a Google search on how to pronounce GLaDOS or GLaDOS, and it seems that I am in the minorities. I, I guess GLaDOS, Prodos, either one would be correct, but... I think we all got each other's meaning no matter how it's pronounced. Yeah, I don't think there was any confusion about what he was talking about. And last month, there was a posting on the Atari Age message board from a user called Dude's Life, and he posited the question, what's wrong with Apple II users? Why don't they share anything? Um, and he was specifically looking for scans of magazines, books, documentation, and we had pointed out while it is a pirate site, you could find most of the stuff on the, the Asimov FTP site. I think there's 50 gigabytes or so of Apple II information uh, available there. We briefly mentioned that. Uh, shortly after that, Dude's Life emailed us, and, and that was not what he was talking about. He was specifically looking for Insider and A+, and some of these other big magazines. I, I still think that, that we were kind of right on with what we were talking about. There's a lot of that stuff out there. It's not in these big websites like they are with, say, Commodore or Atari, where you can get everything in one place. But I think most of that stuff is actually out there. Yeah, we did, as far as I know, accurately represent his question in the last episode and specifically discuss Insider and A+. Those magazines were in the show notes last month. But if he's looking for an authorized index or database of these magazines, he's right, they're not out there. I've never used a Commodore 64 personally. I'm not a member of that community. The disparity between the proliferation of resources in the Commodore 64 group and the Apple II group is significant and noticeable for somebody who's coming from one to the other. And that may certainly be the case. I don't know why that is. Uh, again, we spoke about this at length in the last episode, but I do know that there are more and more Apple II publications being put online every day, especially thanks to your work, Mike, with Apple2Scans.net. So all I can suggest to Dude's Life is uh, be patient and we'll get there. Well, I did want to add one thing, and that's it. I wonder, because I, I believe he said that he was... Uh new to the Apple II community within the past couple of years. I think maybe there's sort of this misunderstanding about the the size of the communities. Uh, there's the Commodore community and the Atari community are, are much larger, I think, right now than the Apple II. And I think that was true back in the 80s as well. There just weren't as many publications for the Apple II as there were for these other platforms. You know, there were hundreds, I think, of Commodore magazines at one time or, or some, some outrageous number like that. You know, whereas with Apple II, you've got computers, you've got Nibble, 
A plus insider soft talk. Those were pretty much the big ones. To a degree, it's almost comparing apples to oranges. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we did receive one other letter from Egan Ford, and he was questioning our choice of words in the opening to every episode of Open Apple, where we refer to the Apple II as Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. He feels that it would be more accurate and respectful to describe it as Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. If that concern originates from the belief that Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak both played critical roles in the formation of the Apple One, the Apple II, and Apple Computer Incorporated, then he's absolutely correct. Those two people were a unique uh, duo who complemented each other in ways that were absolutely essential. Uh, Steve Wozniak had the technical prowess that allowed him to design the machine, and Steve Jobs molded it and marketed it and made it into the foundation of an empire. When we say it's Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer, uh, we believe that literally that is true. Steve Jobs' most famous personal computer is, in my opinion, the Macintosh. And I also believe that once you open up the case and look at what's inside the Apple II, what you're seeing is the brainchild of Steve Wozniak. We mean no disrespect to anybody else. I agree with that. When when you open up the case, I, I think what you're looking at is Woz's handiwork. I know that Jobs certainly had a lot of ideas about what the Apple II should do uh, and where he kind of wanted it to go, both as a computer as a and as a consumer product. But it, he would take those to take those ideas to Woz, and Woz was the one who would you know build it into the circuit and say or or sit down and, and say this is how we can make that happen. Right. So if you've heard our special tribute last month to Steve Jobs, you know that we hold him in very high regard and we mean no disrespect. Certainly some members of the Apple II community debate decisions that Steve Jobs made regarding the Apple II line. You know, we're not even going to go there because you can't argue with the fact that Steve Jobs back in 1977 made everything that we do today possible, such as this podcast. Absolutely. We do appreciate Egan's feedback. We certainly agree to it to a large degree. But as far as the opening of the show, we're going to continue referring to the Apple II as Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. One more feedback, although it didn't come via email, and that comes from Todd Holcomb. He submitted a very favorable review on our podcast listing in the iTunes store, and we very much appreciate that. Yay. Thanks, Todd. Glad to know somebody's listening. <laughs> uh, we don't incentivize people to leave feedback because we don't want that to be a bribery, but we certainly do appreciate anybody who wants to go on and leave some honest feedback, uh, positive or negative, and especially if it's qualitative, if you let us know what you like about the show or what you don't like. Leaving that feedback does two things. One, most important of all, as we just said, it lets us know that you're listening and how we can better serve you. Secondly, from my understanding is the more ratings a show on iTunes get, the easier it is to find when people are searching for it. I think it does impact that search algorithm. We did have somebody who left a one-star review and no reason why. So we don't know how we can address that listener's complaints to make it a better show. And that one-star rating actually brought our entire average down by an entire star. Well, since since we don't know who it is, I'm going to go ahead and blame uh, Carrington Vance for that. <laughs> I think he's sabotaging our show. I do, yeah. <laughs> well, last time we have him on our show. <laughs> this is Carrington from 1 Megahertz, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. And I'm not jealous. 
And this month, as with every Open Apple podcast, we have a, a guest. This month, we have Melissa Barron. Melissa's involvement uh, with the Apple II community, I think, has been rather recent. I, I could be wrong on that. I'm sure she'll fill us in on the details. I first noticed Melissa's stuff, if you want to call it that, uh, with her glitch art at Kansas Fest 2010. So say hello, Melissa. Hi. How are you tonight? I'm doing okay. <laughs> Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the show. And in fact, tech theoretically, this is not the first time you've been on our show. Oh, yeah? Really? You were the intro and outro for our Open Oh, Megahertz. yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> she yeah. didn't even remember us. I'm so I... disappointed. <laughs> Did you even listen to your own debut on this show? No, of course not. I told <laughs> no way. I couldn't listen to my voice, and I won't listen to my interview now. So. Aww. But that just makes it all the more impressive that you're willing to come on the show. So thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. I have no doubts that our listeners will be thrilled to hear you. <laughs> so, Melissa, as far as Mike knows, your involvement in the Apple II community is fairly recent. What is your history with the Apple II? Is this something that you've been using for decades, or is it something you just recently stumbled across? I first had experience with the Apple II computer in elementary school, uh, like a lot of people my age. And that was the only experience I had with the Apple II. And then I didn't rediscover it until just, you know, like, I think it was 2009 when I found out that their emulators existed for the Apple II computer, and yeah, ever since then, I was hooked again. So why the Apple II and not, you know, the TRS-80? Oh, because I never had experience with it. I just remember the Apple II and Oregon Trail from my younger years. And as soon as you found out that there was a community, you immediately signed up for Kansas Fest? Yeah, well, I, I discovered the community before I discovered Kansas Fest, but as soon as I discovered Kansas Fest, I remember screaming to my roommate, well, not screaming, but yelling, you know, she was in her room, like, oh my god, there is a conference for Apple II users, I need to go, so, <laughs> yeah. And you made quite the impression uh, at both Kansas Fest, especially this past year at the exhibit hall, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your display there? Uh, the glitch pieces? Yes. Or, yeah, um, I guess, I don't know, where do you want me to start? <laughs> the beginning is a good place. Uh, well, what is it that you had on display, and how did you come oh, to uh, unite these two unique media? Well, what I had on display was a series of glitched weavings of Apple II crack screens. I wove them on uh, Jacquard Loom, which was computerized. It's called the TC1. I found these crack screens on Jason Scott's website, when I was initially researching a ton of Apple II stuff, and I remember really liking them, I decided to just weave one of them and see how it looked. Well, I was going to say, I know you had uh, several different sizes of weavings there um, this year, including one that, that looked more like a, a tapestry that kind of went from the ceiling to the floor, uh, and it was several lines of basic code, if I remember. How long does it take you to, to make one of those weavings? The lines of basic code, that probably me maybe a total of like 24 hours from start to finish like building the weave file that I used to weave the actual weaving and then actual actually weaving piece on the loom. I remember it was an overnight project. Uh, the smaller pieces uh, they take a little bit less time to weave them. I don't know maybe half an hour to actually weave them once I got going because I, I usually made several files at once and just wove them one right after another. But uh, files 
to create the files, it uh, ranges from a couple of hours to five hours, ten hours, depending on the difficulty of the weave. And do I recall that you purposely create these works of art to not be permanent? Yeah. Uh, usually when you go to weave something you want, you you add weave structures to it so you know it looks like a weaving. But I purposely didn't add these weave structures. I mean, they're no longer weavings. They've become these bundles of thread that are extremely fragile and fall apart at the slightest touch. That is so completely contrary to everything the Apple II community is about. We are about finding old media and preserving it to last forever and ever. And here you are purposely creating things that are going to be destroyed. Why would you do this <laughs> yeah. to us? I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I, found, I find it really beautiful. So I, I mean, it's not like I'm destroying everything. Just, <laughs> so don't worry. Just I, the stuff I, that we like. Yeah, exactly. But I feel, I feel like the you know the next step in this sort of like performance art is you're gonna show up at Kansas Fest with all these beautiful tapestries and just let us watch you set them on fire or something. <laughs> you know, it's funny right now because you're actually glitching out, so only half of your words. Uh, I could only hear half of what you said. So, what was it that you said? I'm too upset. I can't repeat it. Oh. <laughs> well, okay. I, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and summarize it in my version of what I was going to say. So eventually you're going to show up at Kansas Fest with like a Revision Zero Apple II and just have a session where you just like smash it to pieces with a sledgehammer. Is that? Oh, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not much of a hardware person, so oh, don't okay. worry. Yeah. You know, you can always like start with a watermelon and a sledgehammer and just go from there. Yeah, I know. I could. You actually went to school for art, right? Yes, I did. And you've had gallery installations of this Apple II art that you've created. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, one of them was at the at my BFA show, which was the end of the year showing. And then just recently, uh, a couple of them were shown at Glitch. And they're now, well, I think they now are in Amsterdam getting set up for Glitch this weekend that's being held in Amsterdam. You actually have pieces on international tour? Yeah, I do. That, wow. That's phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty exciting. Are you going to get to see them on display? Probably. There will probably be pictures. Uh, I'm assuming it will probably be pretty similar to the, the gallery setup that was in Chicago recently because it's the same show. It's traveling. Now, I didn't get to go to that show, but I, I think I saw pictures of that. And you were able to complement your art with the inspiration, which was an Apple II setup right there, right? Yeah, that was my BFA show. The Apple II that you had on display, was it a working Apple II that people could actually like play Oregon Trail or something? Well, it is a working Apple II, but for gallery purposes, I made it look like it was actually working. The monitor was actually hooked up to a DVD that was playing uh, video work that I created. You do video as well? Yeah, a little bit. Not a whole lot. Are any of those on YouTube or Vimeo? Vimeo, yeah. There's some of my glitch videos on there. Oh, neat. Yeah. I did have one question um, because I'm not familiar at all with the process. Uh, how does it how does it go from like say what I see on my my the the monitor sitting on my Apple II into whatever it is that feeds into the loom? With the the glitched weavings of the crack screens, I took the images from Jason Scott's textiles website or text files website. Sorry, and <laughs> uh, I took the image and I you. 
for this particular process uh, uses Photoshop where you make a bitmap of the image uh, make it into black and white pixels because that's what the Jacquard loom uh, understands and instead of and usually you would apply a, a, a weave structure which holds the piece together basically makes it a weaving but this time I didn't I just wove directly the image directly yeah you take this image and then you bring it over to the loom it has its own computer you know plug it into the program there and it follows the image line by line and then you stand there and throw the the bobbin of thread back and forth to weave the actual image yep but the only computerized process it is the the raising and lowering of the threads so so this is actually quite a bit of manual work for you it is yes especially for the longer pieces i've spent overnights working on it and there's only one loom so you can't really pause and come back the next day just so that you're not you know taking over the machine for a class of like 10 15 people that makes your weavings even more impressive if it were if it were just an image that you just fed into a computer and sort of stood there while I, while the loom did all the stuff automatically yeah i, I kind of like uh the human aspect of it because i mean there's a, another chance for error because i know i made many errors while weaving that are not always easy to fix but you know that kind of works with my whole process so where does one learn how to use one of these looms other than by going to an institute of art and getting a bfa are these commonplace machines that people can just pick up as a hobby yeah you can i mean there are there are places where uh you can sign up to use a loom uh i you know kind of like community uh dark rooms for photography there are, there are places where you can go use a jacquard loom there isn't a whole lot of them because they're just expensive machinery yeah it was very lucky to be able to have access to the one that i did have or have the opportunity to even work with one now these weavings that you made is this something where i could go to your website and buy one not yet i don't know i go back and forth about selling them i don't know a lot of people are interested in them but i have a hard time letting go of them they're like your children Basically, because they're one-of-a-kind pieces, and I don't know when I'll ever be able to work with this loom again. This is not a loom that you have set up in your garage or something. No, no. If I had forty grand, I would totally buy one, but... Oh, wow. Kickstarter. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Kickstarter. Actually, someone suggested that to me once, but we'll see. I would totally donate to that. You had one of your pieces available through a Kickstarter recently, right? I did actually. I had two pieces available through Kickstarter, and there is one lucky person that has one of my weavings now because they donated to Glitch to get this piece. Yeah. And what was that worth to him? They priced it at six hundred and sixty-six dollars, which was the price for the first Apple One computer. Nice. Very cool. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. Now, you've mentioned this Glitch thing a few times, this, the show. What, what specifically is that? Glitch is the it's a now international conference uh, for people who make glitch art and who like glitch art and gathering of uh, friends and other artists. I assume not everyone is showing up there with jacquard loom weavings um, of glitch art. What, what other kind of stuff would I see if I went to one of these shows? Uh, you'll see... Uh, video work, uh, a lot of real-time performances, music, uh, 
circuit bending imagery of glitches, uh, hmm. devices to make glitches. Yeah. So there'd be plenty to see and do if I went to one of these. Oh, yeah, definitely. It was a weekend uh, event and continuing on in Amsterdam and Bir Birmingham. Because you just came back from a glitch, right? Yeah, I just came back from the Chicago glitch that happened over the weekend. How often are those held? This was the second year of glitch. Last year was the first one. First ever glitch conference. Well, I'm sure there, there are other glitch and noise conferences going on, but it was the first one of this particular kind. And they plan on bringing it back to Chicago every November? That's the, the, the plan. You know, we'll see what happens. It's great that you have that opportunity to attend an event like that right in practically your backyard. So moving on to other news items, there's one that we've already brought up, but it's worth revisiting. Uh, as we announced in our tribute episode last month, and as the entire world has since found out, the co-founder, chairman, and former CEO of Apple, Steve Jobs, passed away last month. And there is still an outpouring of both sentiment and biography about his life that is worth mentioning. I actually purchased the authorized biography, the one that just came out through the Amazon Kindle store, and I'm sort of reading it right now. I'm not too far into it. I, I just picked it up this past weekend, I think. Uh, so I, I can't really make a whole lot of comment on it. Sheppy bought that as well, and I think he'll be publishing a review of that soon. I can't wait to read it. I haven't gotten my hands on that yet, but courtesy a link on your Facebook wall, Mike, I did come across the eulogy to Steve Jobs that was given by his sister, Mona Simpson. What did you think of that? Uh, that almost brought me to tears. Well, that did bring me to tears. I thought I'd finished shedding them you know, within the week of Steve Jobs passing away, and then about a month later, this amazing tribute is published on the New York Times website, and it was really powerful. Yeah, I mean, I knew that Mona Simpson was a writer and that she had published several novels, but I, I'd never read any of her work in, until that, and that was, uh, that was very moving. Did I understand correctly that the tribute article I read online was a transcript of what she read at the actual ceremony that Apple held for Steve Jobs? Yeah, she, she wrote that and then read it at his eulogy. I see. Have you watched that video of the Apple ceremony? Uh, no, I haven't, I haven't been able to bring myself to do that. What about you, Melissa? Where were you when you found out about Steve Jobs? I was actually at home. Someone texted me about it. And did you believe them? Yeah, I did because she's a trusted friend. So, now, as someone who hasn't been um, necessarily using Apple II's, you know, from way back when all the way through till today, how did this news affect you? I guess I was I was surprised, especially because it was so recently after he resigned that I was like, I don't. Know, I don't know. It, it seems like it's weird that um, so many people, like, they will retire and then, you know, two weeks later they're dead. Yeah. You know, and, and that just happened with Andy Rooney. What was that, 60 Minutes? Uh, he retired uh, just this past month and, and passed away within weeks of, of his retirement, too. I think the same thing happened with Charles Schultz. I think his very last Peanuts comic strip was published on the day he passed away. Yeah, it's, it's very strange mm. how that works. Yeah. So, however old you are, don't retire. That's right. Just keep working. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I've also been surprised by how sympathetic outsiders to the community have been, reaching out to those people that they know who think might be affected by this news. For example, I got a letter in the mail from my middle brother. It came with a shirt that he bought for me on his trip to Costa Rica. And he included in the note, Too bad about Steve Jobs' recent passing. 
I know he had a major impact on your life, as well as the millions of others that he directly and indirectly impacted and influenced. I thought that was very thoughtful. This may be a blatant plug since I work for Computer World and was involved in the production of this article, but I honestly think that it was a interesting and valuable uh, piece of history that we unearthed. It's a 1995 video interview that we conducted with Steve Jobs. It's about 83 minutes long. It had never been published online until about two weeks ago, and now the entire thing is available online. You can watch it one of two ways. It's cut up into 16 thematic chapters, individual videos that you can watch for free, or it's a single 83-minute video, which is also free, but you just need to uh, give your contact info and sign up to access it. I haven't watched the whole thing, but there are particular chapters that I jumped around to. There are a few about the Apple II, his views on education, his views on philanthropy. It's a surprisingly candid interview, and he comes across as far less fearsome than legend would have you think he is, especially this is in 1995. He's still at Next. He's two years away from coming back to Apple, and he's talking about you know the company he founded, his hopes for it, even though he wasn't playing an active role in it at that time, and it's interesting to look back and watch this video knowing everything that was to come in the next 16 years. I think at that point in his career, Steve had sort of been humbled by his ouster at Apple and by some of the, the things that, that had not worked out as well as he had, had hoped. Somebody said something to the effect that he had left Apple as a, a, a spoiled child and came back as, as a seasoned businessman. Yeah, that sounds about right. There have been plenty of articles talking about the failures of Steve Jobs, not because they're trying to bash the guy after he's dead, but simply to point out how he took that failure and learn from it and use that to build future success. Which is the same thing that he did when he was at Apple. You know, the Apple III was a commercial failure, but he took the technology in it that was successful and put it into other products. Yep. Just like with his time at Apple, he turned his failures into a success. As has been pointed out many times, including on other retro podcasts, anyone who's using a Mac right now is basically using a next computer that Steve Jobs invented while he was away from Apple. I came across an article on macworld.com.au. Is that related to the macworld.com of uh, IDG? Yeah, anywhere you find a thing called Macworld, there are dozens of international versions of Macworld, Computer World, PC World. They're all IDG. Okay. Yeah, so so I came across this article, and, and Dan Kotke, for those who don't remember, was one of the very early employees with, at, at Apple Computer. And Dan Kotke was Apple employee number 12, and he was one of the engineers that did not get any stock from Steve Jobs. And when one of the other engineers came to Jobs and said, we have to take care of your friend Daniel, I'll give him some stock if you match it. Jobs' response was, yeah, I'll match it. I'll give zero, and you give zero. Very generous. Yeah. Kotke actually was very kind to Steve in this the interview, um, talking about his early days at Apple. And for you Apple III fans out there, Kotke was the one who stayed up late at night building the wire wrap uh, prototypes that Dr. William Sander designed. Ah, okay. Yep. There have been a ton of tributes to Steve Jobs posted online, both by the time we did the last episode and in the time since then. If we talk about each one, we'll be here all night, so links will be in the show notes. As we pointed out last month, a lot of people found out about Steve Jobs' passing on a device that he designed, the iPhone or even the iPad or the iPod Touch. A lot of Apple II products have also come full circle and are now available for iOS, including some new offerings from Mike Westerfield. 
Mike Westerfield uh, of Byteworks, actually, he, he recently posted on Compsys Apple II that he was releasing a new development program called Tech Basic. And with that release, he reclassified his old product, GSoft Basic, for the Apple II GS as freeware. Hmm. Oh, we were talking about that with Kelvin last month. Yeah, that was a very nice gift of Mike. Not, I've not done any development in GSoft Basic or really much on the 2GS at all. Have either of you? No. GSoft and I have an estranged relationship. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was love at first sight and a very torrid affair that lasted very briefly. I was at Kansas Fest 1998 when Mike Westerfield was in attendance and debuted GSoft Basic, and I immediately purchased copy number 11, had him autograph it for me. I tore it open and set about to write my Hackfest entry, my first one ever, in a language that had just come out that week and that nobody had ever seen before. And how successful were you? I got a lot of bonus points for audacity. (laughs) Okay. The Boggle game that I was attempting to write did not... uh, Let's just say it's not going to be flying off the shelves anytime soon. Now, is this... Because of your inexperience with GSoft Basic, or were there other issues with the program? I do recall that there was some actual issue I had with the language that wasn't my own fault. And while I was working on this Boggle game, Mike Westerfield actually fixed that bug in the language itself, recompiled it, and handed me a disk with version 1.01. Now that's good customer support. Mm-hmm. That is the best. I actually specifically told that anecdote in my coverage of KFS 98 because back then I was a reporter for a uh, small town newspaper and I did a, a huge feature story about KFS and wrote about the amazing experience of being able to interact with the developer so hands-on like that. But mostly the issue was not with the language, it was with the programmer. I was not really used to programming in a language that didn't have line numbers. I had just finished my first year as a computer science major. I had only a rudimentary grasp of concepts like recursion, and I really needed to be a more knowledgeable programmer to make the most of what GSoft Basic had to offer. Hmm. But it was a great experience, and I, if, if I ever get back into programming on the Apple II, GSoft is probably going to be one of the first languages I choose to do it with. I remember that in conjunction with its debut, Juice GS actually had a promotion where each issue came with a demo version of GSoft Basic that was specifically made for Juice GS subscribers. It was limited in some fashion that I don't recall. The idea was to get people to try it, use it, play with it, and then go buy the full version. Hmm. Well, and then it looks like uh, Mike is sticking to his promotional habits, if you want to call it that, with uh, with the release of Tech Basic for iOS. If you go on to iTunes and review it for him, he will give you a free copy of Opus 2. For those who don't know, Opus 2 is, I, I think, the complete or nearly complete set of development tools that the ByteWorks released over the years. I, as I recall, uh, Syndicom was selling it for, I think, $95 at the time. So that's actually a pretty good deal. Tech Basic for iOS costs $14.99. You write this review, you get $100 or so worth of software uh, in return for that. And actually, he does specify that if you review it on iTunes, he wants it to be a thoughtful and favorable review. However, he is not dismissing people with alternative viewpoints. He says that if you think that Tech Basic has room for improvement, he wants to receive that feedback privately. And he'll still consider you eligible for this promotion. Sounds like a pretty good deal to me. 
especially since he also listed some other review websites. And he says if you cross-post your iTunes review to these other sites, he'll upgrade his offer of Opus 2 to include a copy of Opus 2, the source, which is not only all the stuff that's on Opus 2, but also the source code for what's on Opus 2. Wow. This is actually an expensive bundle if you were to buy it new, and it's worth every dollar. So the opportunity to get it for free is not to be missed. Melissa, do you have any iOS devices? Yes, I do. I actually was just given an iPad. You were given an iPad? Somebody yes, likes I, you. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I'm jealous. I am used to Android. I have an Android phone, so I'm still learning. Is this a Gen 1 iPad? No, just a Gen 2. Ooh, very nice. Wow. And yeah. And what are you using it for at this time? Just games right now. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> I know. Doesn't that sound awful? Like I was given this expensive piece of equipment, and like, what do I do with it? Well, for fourteen ninety nine, you can download a copy of Tech Basic and start developing. There we go. I'll probably do that. I don't have any iOS devices, so if I want to try Tech Basic, I'd have to install it on my mom's iPad, and I'm not sure she'd appreciate that. So my question is. Tech Basic sounds like it's a programming language, which I thought was pretty much against the rules for what Apple allows in their App Store. I'm not a developer. Uh, I'm not part of the Apple developer program or anything like that, so I can't speak with any authority. I know that there are definitely rules as to what you can, can and can't have listed in the App Store. I don't know how Mike implemented it in a way that, that would have allowed him to do that. I don't know if they just haven't caught it yet. They're going to pull it because they do that. True. Actually, I seem to recall that a few months ago, Mike resigned from his job. He just found uh, it not enjoyable and too much work and not enough ROI. So I certainly applaud his courage at pursuing an alternative path. Given that, though, and that this is a commercial product he's selling, I would be inclined to believe that he's playing by the rules if he is expecting to rely on this for any significant amount of income. Hmm. I'm reading the description right now in the iTunes store, and it says, Tech Basic lets you collect information from built-in sensors, process the data with powerful basic programs, and plot the results for visualization. So it actually sounds like a very specific tool rather than... A development environment. Right, yeah. And I could be wrong on this. This is just what I'm reading in the description here. Hmm. Maybe we should have Mike on the show. Maybe we should. Do you have his phone number? <laughs> I'll call him right now. Hey, it's, <laughs> it's not unprecedented. Another Apple II software-related news. Uh, Mark S. Russell has released... Open Emulator 1.0 and then quickly updated it to 1.0.1. This is an Apple One emulator for Snow Leopard and Lion on the Macintosh. According to his About section on OpenEmulator.org, Open Emulator aims to be an accurate, portable emulator of legacy computer systems. By using a software components framework, it is easy to expand a software emulation with additional software devices, just as a real system could be expanded with devices. Uh, it's freeware, so you can download it and start using it today. He does have a, a donation button, so if you want to donate, you can do that. What do you think is the fascination with Apple One replicas in the past three or four years? It seems like there are so many different ways to use this archaic machine now. Probably availability. It's it's you know it's really hard to get a hold of an original to to sit and and play with. Prior to these replicas, did people want Apple Ones to play with, or are they really more of a collector's piece? I don't know. That's that's a difficult one to answer. I mean, I bought I bought Mike Willigill's brain board. Uh, I'm never going to get my hands probably on a real Apple One, and I don't want to sit and and solder together a replica. So at least I have the the option to to emulate the software on an Apple Two. But now that you can emulate it on the Mac for free, does that 
make you regret buying a brain board? I think using the brain board in a real Apple II is sort of a closer experience than, say, Apple Win uh, on on Windows or or Virtual Two on the Macintosh. I'm looking at the at his open emulator here, and it looks like it actually also emulates the Apple II. And you can add things like the Apple II drive, the Disk 2 interface, the Apple III drive, uh, the Apple Graphics tablet interface, and some other stuff. So this is looks like it's already become more than just an Apple One emulator. Actually, you reminded me, I think Mike Willegal released the source code for his brain board. So technically, that can be emulated. Right. That's no relation to what Mark Ressi has done with Open Emulator. Uh, this is not a virtual brain board implementation, is it? No, I think this is just um, just another emulator, but it was aimed specifically at the Apple One, and now he's expanding it. And I know he mentioned in a post on CSA2 that he was looking at doing Apple Three emulation, which would be nice because there isn't really a complete, well-working package out there right now for that. I would like to see an emulator written for the Apple One. What would it emulate? <laughs> Anything would be impressive. <laughs> Melissa, you were not at Kansas Fest when Vince Briel did his Apple One workshop, but you were there when the brain boards were being sold this year and when the A2 MP3 workshop was being conducted. Do you have any sort of favorite peripherals or accessories or emulators? I don't really have any favorite accessories. I, I haven't added or modified any of uh, my hardware, but uh, I do use the Virtual 2 emulator. That was the very first emulator that I discovered, but... I don't know. I'm a big fan of emulators. I'm a big fan fan of emulators just because uh, they allow for anybody to work with an Apple II computer. You know, when you can't get your hands on actual hardware. That's right, because your organ trail hack that was done with disk images, right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't even own. I didn't own anything then. Do you have any Apple II hardware now? An Apple IIe and a IIc. But you must have sent one on tour with your weavings, right? No, I the weavings that are on tour right now are just the weavings. I didn't send any video work. I remember how impressive it was that you gave a presentation at your very first ever Kansas Fest. M- many people need to come for four or five years in a row before they can identify some unique knowledge and also build up the courage to share it. And there you were in the very first year demonstrating your organ trail hack that you did, as we said, through emulators and word processors. And you wrote an article about it for JuiceGS for people who need more details. But that was just such a cool session. And I so much enjoyed it. And I know everybody else did because I think it was Ivan Drucker who said, this may be one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't originally going to sign up to do a session. Andy emailed me to to ask me to do one. So I was like, sure, I'll do one. Because that was something of a reprise of another session you'd done at another conference, right? Yeah, it was similar to it, yeah, at Nauticon in Cleveland, Ohio in 2010. Yeah, I think the Apple II community is sufficiently small that when we get a new member, we're instantly intrigued by this person. Since you had presented at Nauticon, I wouldn't be surprised if your name showed up in a Google search that Andy came across and said, oh, this is potential presentation material. Yeah, I know, I remember my presentation being posted in the Apple II group on Facebook, like someone reviewed it, and maybe he even saw it there. It's always great to have uh, new members join the, join the community, but it's especially great when, when they dive right in and start contributing in a meaningful uh, way like you did, uh, and especially since, not to, not to belittle anyone who's 
developing software or hardware for the Apple II, but your contribution was such such a unique thing. It was just it was great to see, and and like everybody else, I, I was really blown away by your presentations. Yeah, I I was really nervous about being accepted. I, I didn't think that no one that anyone would care about what I was doing. So it was, so it was nice that to see that people were interested. It was a much needed breath of fresh air. Absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. But your Oregon Trail hack was done with text editors, and I want to mention one that just got updated, and that would be Write Room for the Mac. This would not normally be an item that comes up on Apple II Podcast, but Write Room was reviewed in a recent issue of JuiceGS as being a word processor that captures the focused Zen sort of approach to word processing. Just like AppleWorks Classic on the Apple II, it is a monotasking program, not multitasking. It takes up the entire screen, which I guess is probably more commonplace now that lines out. And you can set the font and the color so that it's, you know, green courier text on a black background, which is very retro, and allows you to focus on your writing and your editing without being distracted by the YouTubes and the Facebooks and the Twitters and the emails. And the podcasts. Uh, <laughs> and then the podcasts. So it came out to version 3.0. Uh, unfortunately, the it was advertised as now lying compatible. So I immediately paid an upgrade fee because it's a shareware program. And I had a registered version 2.0. I wanted to upgrade. And it was only after I upgraded that I found out it's not lying compatible per se. It actually requires lying. And I'm on Snow Leopard. Mm, that's a bummer. Apparently, I wasn't the only one who made this mistake or misunderstood his intention, and he realizes this, and he was offering refunds to anybody who wants it. I said, that's very gracious of you. I'm sure it's inevitable that I will be online myself, so I'll just hold on to this very affordable license that I paid for until the day I can use it. Until then, you know, I had a backup of version 2.0, so I just reinstalled that. Not a problem. But if anybody uh, wants to try out Writeroom, the link will be in the show notes. And there are a ton of other programs similar to it for both Mac and Windows, which were reviewed in JuiceJS earlier this year. Melissa, even before you came to KFest 2011, at which Jason Scott was in attendance, your paths had crossed before, right? Yeah. His website was one of the first websites I found that had information about the Apple II. And my, my professor, he knew Jason Scott, so he got me in contact with him for a while. But And I was asking him some questions about what I was doing, but... You know, he's a busy guy, so I felt like I was kind of bothering him. But then he was at, also at Nauticon while I was there. He did the block party. Oh, that's right. That was a uh, a demo party that was yeah. held as a subset of Nauticon. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I'm not sure I had heard of Nauticon until June of last year, which was just a month before your first K-Fest, when I attended a demo party in Massachusetts called At Party, which Jason attended. And I'd actually never heard of demo parties before. I asked the JuiceGS staff, have any of you guys ever heard of this? And I got back like a 2,000-word a missive from Tony Diaz detailing their complete history and his experiences <laughs> with them. It sounds like demo parties are a pretty hip scene. Yeah, yeah, they are. Jason Scott is probably not too well-known in the Apple II community for his, you know, his contributions to the demo party and the demo scene, but more so for being the keynote speaker at K-Fest and also for his documentaries, which would be Get Lamp and BBS the documentary. We spoke last month about how Jason was on Kickstarter launching yet another project. He was on there 
two years ago, I think, raising funds to finish Get Lamp, which he successfully did. He raised $25,000 for the Jason Scott sabbatical, he called it. He has been on it for the past month, raising $100,000 for another three documentaries on the subjects of the 6502 processor, which powers the Apple II, tape as a medium, and arcades as a place, as opposed to the, necessarily the games people play there. That Kickstarter is still ongoing. He's still raising funds. However, on the 45th day of his campaign, he met his goal and reached $100,000. So he will be awarded at least that much at the completion of his Kickstarter, which is just a few days from now. Congratulations, Jason. Yeah, that's awesome. Yes, well done. Ideally, sometime in the next four years, because he has predicted a publication date of around 2015, we will have those three documentaries uh, consume and share. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Ken, you, you had mentioned that one of his documentaries is the 6502 chip. I actually came across a, an article on archaeology.org, of all places, uh, entitled Digging into Technology's Past. It talks a little bit about the, the history of the 6502 and how it was developed by Moz and, and bought by uh, Commodore and, and that sort of thing. They talk about some of, it's some of the problems that uh, they ran into or that they're running into with how do, how do you preserve an actual working microchip as opposed to just having, you know, PDFs of the schematics and the, the, the operating specs online. And uh, one of the things that came up was that the visual 6502 uh, demonstration, which I, we talked about, I think, previous show, which is a, it's a, I think it's a Java applet or a flash demonstration of a, a 6502 in action as you can type in commands and, and see how they're executed through the, the hardware and the chip. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of interest in that chip lately. Not only the archaeology piece you found, the documentary that's coming up, but wasn't it in the last year or so that somebody actually like, I think they x-rayed the 6502 and put up scans of its in- innards. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, that sounds right. I'm pretty sure I saw a story about that on Steve Weirich's Apple II History website. If I can find it again, there will be a link in the show notes. The article on, on archaeology.org, is, it's, it's a very good read, and if you have a few minutes, I, I'd suggest at least skimming through it. The 6502 is just one aspect of computer history that needs to be preserved. A few months ago, we talked about a class being offered in San Jose by Professor Ronald Mack on the history of computing. <laughs> he recently sent an update on this class. Do uh, a lot of computer science students study the history of computers? Ronald Mack doesn't go into too many details about the demographics of his student body. He does say that he has 11 students in his history of computing class, ranging from freshmen to grad students. I don't remember if they're specifically computer science students. He may have said that in his earlier email when he announced the class. I assume it's probably something that anybody can take. But he goes into detail about what the class has been about so far. Like He brought them to the Computer History Museum And I think they were actually there when they found out that Steve Jobs had passed away. That night, Alan Alcorn, or Al Alcorn, was talking. Alan was Jobs' first boss at Atari, so he was able to talk about this gentleman who had just passed away and give some historical context. He has, uh, he being Ronald Mack, has a list of all the projects that students are working on to complete the course. Uh, Some of them include... Uh, the History of Memory and Storage Systems, A Brief History of Apple 2000 to Present, The History of Natural Language Processing, A Short History of the Power PC Chip, which Apple used in many of their Macintoshes. It's really interesting, the work that these students are doing, and it actually sounds rigorous, but also fun. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely sign up for that class. Uh, Melissa, as part of your art education that you recently completed, did you have any sort of computer education? 
There was a wired class, it was called, at SAIC where you got to learn how to uh, use your MacBook Pro and how to build websites, but that was pretty much it for like general population of the school. There were, mm -hmm. there, uh, in some of like the uh, new media art classes, you would learn how to like program to create art. Processing was ta taught, and I, I do believe there was a processing class, although hmm. a lot of it was pretty open where like if you wanted to learn something, they would try to teach you or like try to give you the resources to do what you wanted to do. So they were willing to work with you. Basically, yeah. The professors are pretty awesome. So, Because you said that you're a computer science major, right, Ken? I started off that way, and I lasted about two years, yes. Oh, because I was just curious if, like, if it was common to learn the history of computers in a computer science course. But I suppose that might vary from program to program or different schools. It definitely is uh, a variable aspect of the curriculum. When I was a computer science major, uh, that was probably about 15 years ago, the one class I took that was not actually focused on using and programming computers was a class called the Social Implications of Information Processing. And we talked about uh, artificial intelligence, privacy, and all different subjects like that. It was more of a social studies course than it was mm -hmm. computer science, really. And there was this one kid who could not get through a single one-hour lecture without talking about Skynet. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was going to kill him, I swear. But, uh, yeah, the history of computers, that is something that is, I think, a really fascinating subject. Uh, having been in education as a high school teacher and having presented at many Kansas Fests and more, most recently at the Denver Apple Pie Users Group, I definitely like presenting about a topic that I'm knowledgeable about and passionate about and that intersection occurs with the Apple II. Mm -hmm. Having recently moved, I went to my local library to introduce myself and said, I would like to give a presentation about the computer that Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak invented before the Macintosh, which <laughs> you may not know that there was one, but there was. And I gave them the video of the Denver Apple Pie presentation I gave this summer and said, I want to modify that talk for a more general audience, for a non-Apple users group audience. With Steve Jobs having just passed away, I think that might be really interesting. Let me know what you think. Because, you know, the library has a lot of education uh, components and outreach and lectures. I attended one on the history of postage stamps, which I thought was fascinating, just for fun, because I could. They got back to me and they said, with Steve Jobs passing, we actually think it would be more interesting if you looked at all the different industries that Steve Jobs and Apple Computer have impacted, like personal computing, telecommunications, phones, the music industry, etc. And to a degree, they're right. That mm -hmm. would be perhaps of broader interest and more timely. Unfortunately, my passion for computers is more historical, and I really don't know a lot about how modern cell phones have been shaped by the iPhone. I don't even have a cell phone of, you know, smart or dumb. So I, from, I can't really speak from experience with cell phones like I can with the Apple II. I, I kind of waffled on getting back to them. I said, oh, let me think about it. Um, maybe I'll be able to put something together. It would definitely require more original research, which isn't a bad thing because I would learn a lot more as opposed to just getting up there and talking about what I already know about, which is the Apple II. But eh, maybe it'll happen. Anyway, sorry for the uh, 
really self-centered tangent there. Uh, I'm no Ronald Mack. I'm not teaching at San Jose State University. But if I was in the neighborhood, I would be auditing his class for sure. If there's one thing I like more than being a teacher, it's being a student. Ken, last year you went to VCF East 7.0, didn't you? That is correct. I went with Annie Malloy, and the next day Ivan Drucker was there, and I missed him, unfortunately. But yes, I, you know, speak, speaking of the history of computing, <laughs> I did get to participate and observe a variety of historical machines in operation at VCF East 7.0 in Wall Township, New Jersey. Good news, then. You'll have the opportunity to do it again next year. Uh, Evan Koblenz posted on the Vintage Computer Forums that the dates for VCF East 8.0 have been set. It's currently May 5th and 6th of 2012 at the same museum in Wall, New Jersey. He posted this back on October 11th. The webpage at vintage.org has still not been updated, so I'm not sure when that's going to happen, but it uh, looks like uh, you can block off those days on your calendar. Yeah, my understanding is that the organizer of the event and the organizer of the website are not the same person, so there's often a, a gap there. Hmm. I guess that makes sense. Actually, it doesn't, but <laughs> I probably actually, uh, well, first of all, it's interesting that VCF is going to be held in May. It was held in May this year, so that's consistent. But historically, you know, the six previous VCFs, I think, were mostly held in the summer or the fall, especially September-ish. There were a lot of conflicts in September of 2010 that ended up pushing VCF all the way back to May. I was wondering if they would try to get back into that routine of having it in September. It looks like the May time period worked well for them in 2011, and they're going to stick to it in 2012. Well, if it works, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, I probably won't be going for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is I found VCF East. There were a lot of Apple IIs there, for one thing, which was really cool, and they were doing things I'd never seen before. But as I've mentioned many times on the show, I am very focused on what I derive pleasure from when it comes to retro computing, which is to my detriment, but it is what it is. And I just don't appreciate the other machines that are at VCF like a generalist would. As far as a commercial venture for JuiceGS, which is why I went there as a merchant to sell subscriptions, since most people there were not focused on the Apple II, it, it wasn't really my target audience. There weren't as many opportunities there as I would have hoped. And thirdly, next year's event is being held on Cinco de Mayo, which conflicts with a party I throw every year. Well, I guess that seals the deal then. It does. You know, I, I can't miss my own party. <laughs> I'd like to get to a, a VCF show, but it, it, like you said, it's a very general production. And I, I think there's a lot of focus there, especially for on, on the original with the original VCF and I think VCF Midwest as well, there's a lot of focus on sort of the older mini and mainframe computers rather than the, the microcomputers that I'm more interested in. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not something that I would go out of my way to. I w I'm not going to fly out to New Jersey to see this one. I think as VCF has gotten older, the computers that they focus on have gotten a bit more current. There are certainly a lot more personal computers at VCF 7.0 than there were at the last one I went to, which were, as you said, PDPs, mainframes, etc. So it, it's getting closer to the areas that we're interested in. I know, for example, you, Mike, you are interested in more com kinds of computers than I am, so you'd probably appreciate VCF more than I would. Maybe. No, <laughs> you would. <laughs> no maybes. Well, everything becomes vintage eventually, I guess. If we're lucky. In addition to VCF East, there's also a VCF Midwest, which is closer to you, Melissa. Have you had the opportunity to attend one? 
No, I have not. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. I, maybe it's because I'm more like you, Ken, and I'm interested in just mainly the Apple II when it comes to vintage mm -hmm. computers. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe someday. Because I know there was one either in Chicago or pretty close to Chicago, unless if they're always in the same city in the Midwest. I don't know. Even if you didn't appreciate VCF, I bet VCF would appreciate you. If you set up a display with your weavings, they would probably find that as cool as the Kansas Fest community did. Yeah, maybe? Yeah, I, I, I think there would be a lot of interest if you did that. Hmm. I'll have to look into that. Mike, I haven't seen the announcement from Evan about VCF. Did it go into any more detail other than just the dates? Like, did they announce any sort of speakers or the like? Well, he started a thread on the uh, vintage-computer.com forum, and the only thing that he posted, it just simply says May 5 and 6, 2012 at our museum in Wall, New Jersey, webpage not yet ready. Okay. Yep. Well, I mean, that's similar to Kansas Fest. The very first thing that we do when we get back from each Kansas Fest is announce the dates for next year, and then we announce the keynote speaker, and then we announce registration, and then we announce the sessions and events. Yeah, I mean, there's still plenty of time for them to put something together. Right, and if the next BCF is run similar to how the last one was, it's something that you just sign up for at the door. It's not like K-Fest where you need to you know, reserve a room and make sure that you're going to be there all week. So they're not really in a rush. I've never been to one of these, but as I understand it, it's a lot more informal than, than what, what you see at Kansas Fest. I would definitely agree with that. It's kind of like the old vendor fairs that Kansas Fest had when it was at Avila. It was a different building, a different room. It was huge. It was subterranean. And people could just walk around and look at all this different stuff, whether or not they were buying it. In a way, it was less intimate, but also more exciting than hmm. the vendor fairs we have now. And when I was at VCF, I was reminded of those old vendor fairs. Interesting. Isn't it? It is. There was also a VCF Southwest recently. If they reiterate that event next year, I have the perfect venue in mind. It may require a little bit of fundraising on Kickstarter, but I think they can do it. Oh, where's that? 8207 Two Coves Drive in Austin, Texas, and is also known as Britannia Manor, home of Lord British, a.k.a. Richard Garriott. And you think he would just let people come in and do that? I think he would sell the property to VCF because it is actually currently on the real estate block. Really? Yes. For a cool $4.1 million, this 5,900-square-foot property, including a 360-degree observatory with telescope, a pool, grotto, waterfall, and a variety of other features can all be yours. Yeah, I've seen pictures of this actually online. It's uh, did, and I think he's kind of modeled it after some of the buildings and in, in places in, in the Ultima games, didn't he? That I don't know about, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised. It was built in 1987, so it's only 24 years old. Ultima is older than that. Yeah. Well, uh, sign me up for that. Are you going to bid on this just like you bid on that Castle Wolfenstein painting on eBay? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, Castle Wolfenstein painting? Oh, uh, that was a couple of episodes ago. The uh, original box art for the original Castle Wolfenstein by Silas Warner on the Apple II was actually originally an oil painting, <laughs> and that original painting was on eBay. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think I bid, like, Mike and I both bid around $500, and for a while there, I was actually the top bidder, and my heart was frozen while I had that position because I didn't actually want to win. Yeah, 
but in the but like in the last minute of the event, it went up to like two thousand dollars. Oh wow! I thought it was like six thousand. It was significant. Yes, certainly more than I could afford. But despite the thematic correlation, I just really can't see that particular piece of art hanging in Britannia Manor. Yeah, that would be a bit out of place. Yeah, an unusual juxtaposition. One thing I haven't been able to figure out, though, is why Lord British is selling his manor. It isn't said anywhere? If he has, I haven't come across it. It's possible that with his fallout from NCSoft, the company that publishes MMO Tabula Rasa, mm. and or because of his expensive flight into outer space several years ago, that you know, maybe he needs the funds to, with which to support further adventures. He is quite the geocacher, for example. But if he's not living in his manor, where will he live? I don't know. I wonder if the realty company that's handling this piece of property is getting many calls from people who claim to be interested, but all they really want is just a tour of Britannia Manor. Probably. I know if I lived in that area, that's something that I would do. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you get that with any old house, really. I like looking at houses, even if they aren't famous. Yeah, but do you call up the realty company pretending to be interested in buying them? <laughs> no, I haven't gone that far yet, I guess. Yeah. Well, I guess you're just not hardcore enough. No, I'm not. <laughs> What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. Our eBay section is a little bit light this month just because we had so much news to report, but I do want to mention that I have been active on eBay again, just as I was last month, although this time it was not cheesy 80s movie soundtracks. <laughs> what was it this time? Cheesy 80 Apple II hardware. I think that's a better investment. Yeah, probably in the long run. Just before I left Massachusetts on my sabbatical this summer, I encountered some bad five and a quarter inch floppy disks, and I didn't have time to diagnose the problem. Recently, I had a free lunch break at work, which is where my Apple II is, and I went to play some of the microzines. I picked up a KFS, and I could not get them to work, which was weird because I actually knew that those disks worked. So... It wasn't the discs after all. It was the hardware. And I spoke to you, Mike, about doing, what's it called, a speed adjustment? Right. That may have fixed my issue. But at the same time, I had brought back to Massachusetts from Denver the Apple II of one of my college classmates and gave it to her so she could have it back in her possession, having moved here from Denver herself many decades ago. She was thrilled to have an Apple II again and for the first time ever i actually know an apple II user who's just a few miles from me but she couldn't get her floppy drive to work either so since neither of us really know anything about speed adjustments we just went on ebay and bought some new ones or new to us that works too yeah and they do work one question i have though these are you know standard i think they're disc two apple twos the kind not that you flip the door up but that you actually push it in and then it goes up oh right like yeah right the question i have is the drive I had that broke was a, a platinum color, a gray, that went well with my Apple II GS. The ones we got in the mail from eBay are more of a yellowish color that is more consistent with the Apple IIe. Now, is that because both the floppy drive and the Apple IIe have aged from their original platinum into this brownish color, or were they always this color? I think there were several different versions of that, that external drive that you're talking about, and you can tell them apart by their model numbers. Uh, and and I, I kind of got into this a little bit when I installed the um, Apple IIe card in the uh, 
Mac Color Classic, where one of the drives works with it um, and one of them doesn't. And it, I'm not sure what the difference is in the in the circuitry there. Uh, somebody like Tony Diaz would probably have a better answer than I would. But I know that there are at least two models. Oh, we do have Tony's phone number. Well, you could g- give him a call again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's had his fill of us. <laughs> I think so, yeah. So the, the original Unidisc 5.25 is uh, the model number A9M0104, and that was the one that was released to replace the Disc 2 drive, and that's the one that comes in that sort of brownish case, that the one that you're talking about. The later model is the Apple 5.25 drive, and its model number is A9M0107, and that was the one that was in the Platinum case. The older Unidisc 5.25 is the one that wasn't compatible with some of the, the later Apple hardware, such as the 2E card. What was it that made it incompatible? The Apple IIe card used a, a voltage that the uh, the older drive didn't support. Okay. My floppy drives aren't too far away at the moment, but I don't want to pause the show to go look for them. But I now have that information and can figure out what it is I have. Yep. Well, I'm not sure which model number I have. I do know that I'm disappointed to have exchanged my consistent platinum drive for an ugly brown one, whereas <laughs> Sarah is thrilled to have... Uh, a lovely brown floppy drive that goes great with her Apple IIe. Well, did you keep the old uh, platinum case? Oh, I didn't throw anything out. Actually, they're currently daisy-chained, so I have one functional drive in the first uh, as drive one and the gray broken one in drive two, just in case I ever get it fixed. Oh, well, you could swap the working circuitry into the other case if you wanted to. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. I was probably just thinking in the long term I'd bring the supposedly broken drive to Kansas Fest and have somebody there fix it. You could do that too. Because I'm lazy and don't want to learn how to do it myself. Melissa, you mentioned that you have pretty much a, nearly a stock Apple II. Uh, does that mean that since there's less complexity to your setup that you've had fewer hardware issues? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I yeah, I mean, I haven't had any problems with the, my computer at all. So where did you get the Apple II that you have now? Uh, I don't know. I got it for Christmas, actually, from my parents. I don't know where they got it. Is that the kind of gift that you ask for, or do your parents just know you that well? I kind of hinted at it, I guess, that I was looking for one, because that was around the time that I was working on the Oregon Trail project, and I was interested in messing around with the actual hardware or playing it on the actual hardware. See, if I hinted around that I wanted an Apple II, I would probably get two apples for Christmas. Uh, Speaking of misconstrued Apple terminology, this is a real tangent off the eBay topic, but for Halloween, I dressed up as a pirate, and except that, you know, I have a huge head, both figuratively and literally, and the <laughs> eye patch wouldn't go around or it wouldn't stay there, and so I was wearing it, and it just snapped and broke off. I was telling this story to a friend of mine, how I was dressed up as a pirate, and my eye patch broke, and blah, blah, blah. And even though I said eye patch, what she heard was lowercase letter I, capital P, A-T-C-H. Like it was an Apple product. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. And so she's she's thinking to herself, okay, I know Ken's an Apple geek, but what is the eye patch? Is this something I haven't heard about yet? (laughs) It's a program to patch your iOS device. Apparently. Or maybe it's just like a really small portable tablet that you just plant right over your eye hole. (laughs) That way you always have it in your vision. I don't know. but The eye patch. Coming soon. I also bought one of the items that we mentioned in last month's episode. That was the Boston Computer Society newsletter. Right, yeah. How was that? The newsletter itself is pretty nondescript. 
I think that this group met often enough that they didn't necessarily need to communicate through a written medium that often. It was more uh, of a reference than anything. For example, they listed all the different timeout products and was the program called Beagle Buddy where you were like a representative of Beagle Brothers basically? Yeah, I think that's that's right. But basically instead of upgrading your software through Beagle Brothers, Beagle Brothers sent a master to a representative with the BCS. You would go to that person and as long as you had provided documentation that you owned the original, you could upgrade right from him and just get a disc right at the meeting. That's uh, a good idea. Yeah. yeah. So what the BCS newsletter listed was, here are all the products that you can upgrade through us. And there were a couple of articles in there as well, but the most informative piece of information that I got from that, and really this is the reason I bought it, was for the masthead because I wanted the names of the people who were responsible for this publication and this SIG within the larger BCS. I did recognize one name. That was Edmund Lundberg. I have not only communicated with him previously, but also his website is listed on the A2 web, which is a index that David Kerwood maintains of Apple II user homepages. Uh, not complete, but comprehensive. And occasionally outdated, but in this case, it let me get in touch with Edmund, and I asked him, do you know where I might get more BCSs? Do you know how these newsletters were created? Do you know if they were done digitally, and if so, if the original files are still available? Because I don't know if this is something that you sparked in me, Mike, or if it's just my work through JuiceGS, but I'm really keen on Apple II publications being preserved. And so I would like to get my hands on some more BCS Apple newsletters and see if we can give those a new lease on life somewhere online. Yeah, it's actually interesting that, that you would, would mention this. One of my more recent Apple II history interests, I guess, if you if you want to call it that, has been the sort of the history of these of these user groups that, you know, you have these in, in the case of BCS, you had tens of thousands of people joined at at one point. And I think there's a rich history there that, that sort of only exists now in either the whatever the, the user groups happen to capture on video at their meetings or in these these newsletters. I have a whole stack of Apple three user group newsletters that I've been scanning and posting, and I have a, a stack of the Gravenstein Apple user group. Um, I have a bunch of their newsletters, um, and, and I think that that's have, just having those and going through them has certainly sparked my interest in that. That information can be significant. For example, about a year ago, we got a hold of the videotape of a Gravenstein users group meeting where Joe Cohn demonstrated the Mark Twain Apple II GS. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking of. We never did identify who was behind the camera, but we spoke to so many people who actually were at that meeting, and they all said, whoever was behind the meeting has no concerns about copyright, so go ahead and digitize and publish this. So we did, and we hope that we were respectful, and at every opportunity, we said, if you know something that we don't, please get in touch with us, because we want the bigger picture. But you're right, uh, whether it's a video or an audio recording that Resource Central recorded at Kansas Fest, or a newsletter that your local Apple users group published. For example, I used to belong to the Apple User Society of Melbourne, or Awesome for short, and they had a magazine, not a newsletter, but a magazine. And there was some Apple II information in those. And I have a collection of awesome magazines that I don't know why I haven't sent them to you yet to digitize. Well, I'll get on that. 
Would you do that for me? I absolutely would. Yeah, I think well. I think this is an important part of Apple, Apple II history that uh, largely gets gets ignored. Have either of you ever actually belonged to an Apple users group, whether or not it's Apple II? Mm-mm. I belonged to a uh, several bulletin board user groups back in Southern California uh, when I was active in that community, and several of them were Apple II specific, but they were more about the BBS and less about you know, Apple II in general. Were there real-life meetups based around these communities? Yeah, most of them had at least uh, a monthly meetup at the local pizza place. Hmm. That sounds like fun. Yeah, it, it was. People would come and hang out and, and eat pizza, and if you're old enough, drink beer, and, and sort of meet the faces that were behind the posts that you saw. Which somehow ties all back into eBay. <laughs> because it's a big community. Actually, it's a small community. Another item we mentioned last month was the AutoArc hardware compression software. One of our listeners pointed out that that auction item was actually being sold by Stephen Buggy, who is or has been a member of our community. He would create, uh, I think, alternative power supplies with which to replace the inbuilt one in the Apple IIGS. Has anybody ever used a Buggy power supply? Uh, I have not. By the time by the time I was interested in, in upgrading, he had stopped selling those. I remember he wrote some articles for JuiceGS, actually, and we still actually have some subscribers who remember and reference them. But you're right. It's pretty much the same time here. Uh, I thought he was on his way out as I was coming into the community, so to hear that he's selling stuff on eBay kind of came as a little surprise to me. I wonder if I should drop him a line and say, hey, you know, pleasantly surprised to see you're still around. What's up? Well, in fact, it's funny that you should mention that because I, I recently, like within the last week or so, bought a lot of uh, Apple II joysticks, and it turned out that Stephen was selling those too. Oh, so you actually had a business transaction with him. I did, yes. I'm, in fact, waiting for them to arrive. They're supposed to, they're scheduled to show up tomorrow. Send him our regards. Well, I, I hope it's it's an indication that he's still involved in the Apple II world rather than that he's just selling off stuff that he doesn't care about anymore. Right. Fortunately, my experience is that people in the Apple II community are pretty respectful of their own property. An Apple II user recently reached out to me to tell me that he was going through a very sudden and challenging period in his life, and he needed to get rid of his Apple II stuff. He just didn't have room for it anymore. And he needed a solution that was free, quick, and easy. And for him, that meant throwing it all in the dumpster. But he didn't want to throw it in the dumpster, so he took the time to reach out to me and say, is there anything you can think of as an alternative? And of course, I thought, oh, well, you could put it on eBay. But even if he made a few bucks off it, that wouldn't be the quick and easy solution he wanted. So since I know where most of the Apple II users are in different parts of the country and the world, I was able to find some near him and put them in touch, and one was able to take this hardware off the other's hand just to give it a good home, which is you know any home that isn't the dumpster. Yeah. But for Apple II users who do have the time and energy, it can be profitable to put your old stuff on eBay. It certainly can. Uh, there have been a couple of Apple IIs listed recently on eBay, uh, one of which sold for And what is it about this machine that makes it worth anything near that amount? Uh, Probably a collector with more money than cents. This is actually a late model Apple II. It's not even one of the original uh, revision zeros. This is from the date code on the motherboard is, is the 35th week of 1979. I wonder how much 
an early model would go for these days. But with expensive items like this also comes the, the caveat mTOR, um, and that's that some of these things are not what they appear to be. What do you mean? Well, there was another Apple II that was listed right around the same time, uh, maybe shortly thereafter, that also sold for $5,100, which turned out to be uh, an Apple II Plus in an Apple II case. Do you think that was an intentional deception on the part of the seller? Somebody on CompSys Apple II actually reached out to the seller, and the response that they got was that he was aware that it had been modified at some point in the past, but he didn't really seem to care one way or the other. And it's it's interesting because if, if you look at the, the serial number sticker on the bottom of the plate is actually for an Apple II, an original Apple II, and it's in fact serial number 4264, so it's fairly low. But the keyboard, the power light, and the internals are all Apple II+. Plus. Is that the product of a relatively simple hack, or was this something that was intentionally done to make one thing look like another? If I had to guess, I, I would say that somebody originally had an Apple II, and then, you know, when the 2 Plus came out, bought the internals and just upgraded it and, and probably recycled the old parts. Whoever the seller is is certainly benefiting from that. So probably the seller is not the original owner who did that upgrade. No, I, I wouldn't think so. Uh, but it is unfortunate that whoever spent $5,100 on this thing is not getting probably what they think it is. Hmm. For an example of a real Apple II... There was some pictures posted recently on, on AppleFritter.com, and these were of Apple II serial number 101. In fact, this one is old enough to have the original case that didn't have the slots in the side, the, the air vents. Did that make it prone to overheating? Well, I, if you were there at, at Kansas Fest, I think Bob Bishop actually talked about having one of those cases for his Apple II serial number 13, and the case melted. Eek. Yep which is why they put the vents there. But if you want to see what a, a real Apple II revision zero, uh, revision zero looks like, definitely check out the Apple Fritter thread. Now, what is the source of those pictures? Did somebody on Apple Fritter actually own this machine? Yeah, um, he didn't go into to how he got it. He just said he recently picked it up, which is a pretty incredible find. Because if that 1979 Apple II uh, went for $5,100, I'm guessing this would go for quite a bit more. This one has the, the green connectors rather than the black ones and i think it even has the the old uh, toggle switch power supply rather than the the, the flip switch mm -hmm. yes it does does he have any intention of selling <laughs> i doubt it there was also a, a black bell and howell apple 2 plus for sale on ebay a very low serial number uh, number 382 this one to me was interesting because it came in the uh, apple 2 case rather than the apple 2 plus case that most of them came in Sean Fahey actually had one of these at the exhibit hall at Kansas Fest this past year. And this one sold for a whopping uh, $401, certainly cheaper than than the Apple IIs were going for. I don't know, it's kind of weird how collectors work, because I think these things are probably actually uh, more rare than an Apple II. And they were certainly not as uh, uh, easily available as the Apple II was, because these were only sold to schools and educational outfits. So you said that this went for about 400 bucks. Yep. Do you think that is more or less than what it's worth? Uh, I think that's probably a lot less than what it's worth. That's what it sounds like. How much How much do you think it's worth? I've seen them. The, the two plus cases go for a couple hundred dollars more than that. This one also has the, the black uh, matching five and a quarter inch drives, which a lot of them don't. But does it come with a Darth Vader action figure? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you have to pay extra for that. 
How well do you know your Apple soundtrack? See if you can name the game. And now it's time for the monthly Name the Game contest. Mike, remind us what we're playing for this month. Well, this month, uh, people were playing for Bob Bishop's bomber game on cassette tape, and this one was special because I had him autograph it at uh, Kansas Fest this year. Very cool. So people can actually play an original Bob Bishop game that he has laid his own hands on. Well, I don't know if you can play it. I don't have a cassette player that I can hook up to my Apple II to test it, but if the tape itself... The software doesn't work. I think you can just download the the wave file from uh, uh, Brutal Deluxe's webpage and re-record it and get a working copy that way. Can you get it right from Bob Bishop's website? I don't think so. No, uh, I think hmm. you can get the source code, but not the file that you would need. I mean, you could sit there and type it in, I guess, but it would probably be quicker to to just re you know, use the recording that Antoine has on Brutal Deluxe. The reason I ask is if Bob himself is publishing the source code, then chances are getting an unauthorized copy from elsewhere probably isn't piracy. No, I wouldn't think so. Not at this point. The game that our listeners were challenged to name to win that prize sounded to something a little like this. Everybody who sent their entries to name the game at open-apple.net has been, and who got the right answer has been entered into this contest. What answer did they have to give to be eligible, Mike? Well, that game would be Spy's Demise. That is correct. Now, why did we choose that game? What is your memory of that? Uh, well, it was a game that I enjoyed uh, quite a bit, and I was hoping for a title that would be a little bit more difficult than maybe some of the other ones out there, but I don't think that was the case. I think we had quite a few people nail that one. I think everyone who entered got it right. And we put all those names into a hat. I'm going to draw one name out now. And that name is... Todd Holcomb. Hooray, Todd. <laughs> Congratulations, Todd. And this actually puts us in a slightly awkward position because we started this episode by saying that we can't incentivize people submitting positive reviews for our show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Todd, what did you do to us? We've been outed. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, but congratulations, Todd. Mike will be in touch with you to get you your copy of Bob Bishop's Bomber, or B3 as it's not known. Yep. As soon as I get an address, I will drop in the mail. Sweet. So what else is new in the world of classic gaming, Mike? Are you familiar with Jimmy Mayer? From having talked about him on the last show, I am. Yeah. Well, he published a, a book a while back called Let's Tell a Story Together, A History of Interactive Fiction, which was available, I think, exclusively on the web to read in HTML. I don't remember whether you could buy a hardcover book or anything like that from him, but he's now made it available as a free download in both Mobi and EPUB format, which means that you can download this thing and put it on your iPad or your Android device and read it. Ah, that's much more portable than the old HTML version. I think that version came out five years ago. I don't know that he's made any changes to the book other than to the format, um, but it is a, it's still a free book, right? Yeah, it's absolutely free okay. uh, and well worth reading. Oh, have you read it then? I'm making my way through it. It's very good. Well, and if you've read his blog, you have an idea of how well he writes. Right. I often fall behind on his blog because his writing is so substantial that I want to take the time to fully absorb it which means setting it aside for when I have the time to appreciate it. And 
that time doesn't come very often. I mentioned last month my concern over his blog posts not often citing their sources. He did reply to me personally on that point, and he said that if you follow the links in his blog posts, the sources are often there. And if they're not, it's probably because he already did the research for this ebook. Oh, great. Okay. So if you're wondering the source of Jimmy's wisdom, go ahead and download a free copy of his book. It, it's not available from Amazon or iTunes or anything. You actually have to go right to his website and just click download. Sure. And there's another ebook that just came out of interest to Apple II users. Uh, Jordan Mechner, the famous creator of both Karataka or Karatika, if you prefer, and Prince of Persia, more significantly, over the last few years has released many of his original design documents, diaries, journals, and notes on his website. He has now gone back and collected all those into an easy-to-read ebook format. So this information, I believe was and probably still is available for free on his website but if you want it in a little bit more structured and portable format you can download his book it is available as a pdf or for the kindle unlike jimmy mayer's book this book is a commercial product for 7.99 in either format but you can download the first 40 pages for free as a pdf off his website so that you have an idea of what you're going to get in the 330 page prince of persia PDF that you can otherwise buy. Uh, Seven ninety nine for that book sounds like a pretty good price. I'm definitely interested. Yeah, I think it's really impressive how much history some of these developers <sighs> documented of their own accord, keeping all these diaries and journals, not just at the time, like taking the time during his programming to write down what he was doing, but then holding on to those documents for 30 years. That's not the foresight that many people have. When I first booted up uh, Karateka, I was blown away by the, the graphics and how he was able to do something like that, like that on the Apple II. And so now I'm, I'm looking forward to, to kind of reading his perspective on, on the work that went into it. However, one enterprising programmer didn't need all those design documents to do his own variation on Jordan Meshner's work. A Commodore 64 programmer by the name of Mr. Sid ported Prince of Persia to the Commodore 64, which is pretty impressive as I commenter on my blog said, not bad for an inferior machine. <laughs> Joran Meshner himself came across this port and he actually commented on the blog where the, the port was announced. I would think that this sort of a, I mean, technically this is a violation of copyright of intellectual property because you're copying the look and feel of his game without his permission, even if it is for a uh, non-commercially viable platform. Nonetheless, Joran Meshner was not displeased. On the contrary, he said, that's crazy. Back in 1989, when I was making Prince of Persia on the Apple II, I couldn't get anyone interested in a Commodore 64 port because even at the time, it was too old a system. And apparently now, in 2011, it's not. <laughs> there are some uh, YouTube videos available where you can see the gameplay. Uh, the graphics are different from the Apple II, but all the levels are the same. The gameplay is pretty much identical. And I, I think that's pretty neat. Have you ever played any version of this game, Melissa? No, I haven't. Really? Yeah. Oh, you should get a hold of it. I should. Not only are the rotoscope graphics pretty cool to see on an 8-bit system, but the game itself is actually pretty fun. I think I might have played it on the Super Nintendo, but the version I'm most familiar with is actually the uh, Xbox Live Arcade. They create a game called Prince of Persia Classic that has all updated graphics, but it's still the original game 
especially in the sense that you have only one hour to finish because that was one of the challenges like it starts off with the evil vizier turning over an hourglass which represents one hour and you have until that hourglass runs out to save the princess so you can die and go back to a certain point and i believe that resets time to when you were at that point but as far as a single playthrough goes you have to do it in one hour which is quite the challenge yeah i'm still not sure i could beat the game without any sort of restriction like that another game that used rotoscope graphics which i was also a fan of on the super nintendo was out of this world it was sort of a platform puzzler and i blogged on apple 2bits my personal blog back in march the announcement that it was being ported to ios which i was totally psyched for but since i don't have an ios device it kind of fell off my radar after that huh. and I just, I just found out from listening to carrington on the retro computing roundtable podcast that it actually came out last month wow it's called another world on the ios which is the name the game originally carried everywhere in the world except the united states where it was called out of this world it's 4.99 i have since purchased it and downloaded it onto my mother's iPad, which is the only iOS device in my entire family. Uh, so next time I can get my hands on that, I'm going to give it a try. But I wish that this had happened like seven years ago, not that there was an iOS back then, because in a former life, I was a high school English teacher, specifically science writing, and I taught them how to write in all sorts of different genres and disciplines. One area I wanted to go into and never did was the art of the instruction manual. I had the whole lesson plan in my head. I want to give the students a copy of Out of This World and no manual. Because this game, it's dense. It's somewhat inscrutable, at least on the Super Nintendo version. You're not really sure what the buttons do. You're not really sure what your goal is because the main character, he starts off by waking up in an alien world. In an ocean, actually. And you don't know... Do I swim up? Do I swim down? Is that thing deadly? Is this thing alien to me? I don't understand their language. Are they friend or foe? And I want to give the students this game to play and say, how would you explain to somebody else how to play this game? So basically, they needed to figure it out and then translate their experience into meaningful documentation. But, of course, there was no easy way for me to get 16 kids playing a Super Nintendo game that had come out 15 years earlier. Yeah, but that would have been a bit of a challenge. Right. You know, that would have been more of a challenge for me than it would have been for them to actually write the manual. Right. So, that lesson plan never got executed. But nowadays, I could just, you know, pass out 16 iPads and say, <laughs> here, play this game. Because, you know, schools are that well-funded. Yeah. <laughs> Another iOS vintage gaming-related news, uh, Elite Systems has announced that they're going to be releasing the Elite Collection for the iPad. Now, this is 12 8-bit titles, and the ones that are, will probably be of interest to the Apple II users are, are Choplifter, the Alternate Reality Series, uh, Archon 2 Adept, and if you're like me, uh, Mule. Uh, Mule is one of those titles that appeared on the Commodore 64 and for whatever reason was never ported back to the uh, to the Apple II, but if Prince of Persia came out on the Commodore 64 recently, well, maybe there's hope for Mule too. It's never too late. Yep. Now, a lot of those games sound familiar to me. Choplifter, I played on the Apple II, and there's a new version coming out for the PlayStation 3 uh, this quarter. I don't think it's out yet, but it's certainly due out soon then. I can't wait for both of those titles. And Archon, I'm not really sure I know Archon 2, but Archon 1 is available for iOS already. Okay. 
Now, Melissa, you said that you're using your iOS device primarily as a gaming machine. Are any of those games informed by your Apple II experience? No, not at all. <laughs> so, no. uh, I mean, I just recently got this device, and I'm still getting used to it. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Tell me you've at least played Scribblenauts. I haven't, no. <gasps> okay, nothing to do with the Apple II, but you got to get your hands on Scribblenauts. It's awesome. Now, these 12 games that Elite Systems is coming out with, Mike, is this a single bundle that people buy and get all the games? Well, according to Touch Arcade, that's that's the case. You, yeah, it's uh, they didn't announce a price, but it looks like you you buy one thing and you get all these titles. Wow. Yeah. That's probably going to be a really good deal. Uh, yeah, it's it's not out yet uh, because as soon as it comes out, I, I'm going to buy it. Um, and that's why I haven't, I can't really comment on it because I haven't seen it yet. Is there a release date? Uh, there was not as of October 24th when Touch Arcade announced it can buy alternate reality the city as a standalone title for 99 cents well touch arcade says that uh elite collection is supposed to come out the weekend of october 28th maybe it's been released they do have something called zx spectrum elite collection i wonder if that's the same thing that would mean these titles are based on the, the zx spectrum versions of these games and that was released well no that was released on september 2nd i don't know well, I see an alternate reality that came out October 28th from Elite Systems, but it's just the one game. Right, that's, yeah, that's the 99 cent one. So maybe these are individual games and not a pack? Well, according to Touch Arcade, it's the Elite Collection, which includes 12 8-bit titles. Maybe they're, maybe they're just not done yet with all the titles. Oh, that reminds me that Wizardry just came out for the iPad. Actually, I'm sorry, not the iPad, the iPhone. It's hmm. not optimized for iPad. Okay. It's called The Labyrinth of Lost Souls, and it's actually heavily inspired by uh, anime and manga because if it looks like a Japanese RPG, and I believe that that is where the series has gone. In its heyday, it was actually quite popular in Japan, so when the series died off in the United States, it kept going over there, and now they've started porting them back to us. So this, is, this isn't uh, like an original wizardry port. It's more of sort of a descendant of wizardry? Exactly. Okay. If you want something closer to those classic wireframe dungeon exploring routes, I would recommend Akalabeth, which I know is not Wizardry, it's Ultima, but Wizardry and Ultima, in my opinion, both started off very similarly and then diverged. Hmm. So I think Akalabeth is very similar to Wizardry's roots as well. Well, we've already mentioned Jason Scott a few times in this episode, so why not one more time? I picked up a, a tweet of his uh, where he mentioned Andrew Plotkin's uh, PlotX program. This is a, a command line tool. Uh, if you're an IF author, this tool will check your story for plot holes. I took a look at it. It looks fairly complex, and you, I think you kind of have to have a deep knowledge of of uh, probably inform programming, which I don't, so I I, I couldn't uh, decipher too much information from it. But it looks like if you are an IF author, this is probably a very useful tool. Now, just to clarify, when Plotkin says plot holes, he's not talking about how, oh, gee, the Enterprise said that their dilithium crystals were cracked, and now all of a sudden they're going at warp speed. He's talking about plot being separate from story, plot being the puzzles and inventories needed to progress through the experience that is the game. Correct, yeah. I did not find out about this through Twitter. Andrew Plotkin ran his own Kickstarter to become a full-time interactive fiction author. He asked for 15000 got at least double that. That was 
probably about a year ago, I interviewed him for Juice GS for a story that published back in March 2011, and I met him at PAX East 2011 a month or two later. Seems like a really nice guy. He's published several iPad games, actually, quite recently. I've bought those, but not gotten the chance to play them. Uh, one is called My Secret Hideout, and the other is an adaptation of a choose-your-own-adventure graphic novel, which sounds uh, intriguing. Hmm. And he's working on an interactive fiction game called Hattie and Lands, which will be available for a variety of platforms. Along the way, he's doing a lot of development work in releasing the tools and documentation that he's producing so that other people can follow in his footsteps and have an easier path toward creating their own IF. Plot X is one such fruit of his efforts. Well, I, there's the, the Frots um, player for the iPad and I think the iPhone too, which comes with several uh, interactive fiction games, and I think his is one of the ones that's featured in that. I wouldn't be surprised. His pieces, many of which are playable right through your web browser, are often cited as a means to introduce people to the genre of IF. Yep. Melissa, are you a text adventure fan? I do enjoy them. I don't play a whole lot of them, but yes. Did you know about Frots for iOS? I did not. Now you do. I That's do. the next game you can install. Right, right after Scribble Knots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. And, and Wizardry and Choplifter and Yule. <laughs> and it's free. That's right. One more game I want to briefly mention. Last month we were talking to Kelvin Sherlock about differences between the ROM 1 and the ROM 3 and how some software would run on one not the other. And I mentioned Death Hunt, which was a two-player modem game. About an hour after we finished recording, the name of the programmer for that game popped into my head, Justin Legacus. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. And so on a lark, I looked him up on Facebook, and I found him. Uh, We actually have a mutual friend. I think we're both contra dancers, apparently. But I emailed him, and I gave him a link to the show, and I said, what brings me to you today is to ask if you wrote the Apple II GS game Death Hunt. I'm sure that this came out of the blue for him, and he wrote back and said, wow, it's been a long time since anybody asked me about Death Hunt. (laughs) Yes, I wrote for that for the Apple II GS over 20 years ago. Wow. I brought it to his attention in the context of how we discussed it last month, which was a sign that runs on the ROM 1 and not the ROM 3. Justin wrote back saying he doesn't remember being aware of any ROM differences. So I want to come back and give him the benefit of the doubt. I haven't played this game in probably about 20 years. I have never owned a ROM 3. I recall the person I was trying to play against couldn't get it running on his ROM 3, and he cited that it might be a ROM issue. The specifics of the conversation beyond that are lost to the echoes of my memory. It's possible that that diagnosis was incorrect and that Justin's program does work on both. I don't know that that's likely something that anybody is going to be encountering anytime soon, but if you do have that experience and it's different on a ROM 1 versus a ROM 3, let us know. And if it isn't and it works fine on both, then I apologize for that misdiagnosis that was incurred 20 years ago. Hmm. He deserves the benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. I do think it was cool that he wrote back, though. A lot of people, you know, the Apple II is something that they played with as a kid, and when they grew up, they put away childish things, and they don't want to hear about it anymore. But he was kind enough to write back. Yeah, it was very nice. So that brings us to the end of the Name the Game section. You may notice that we didn't play a segment for you to name this month. Uh, We're taking a brief hiatus on that because, uh, A, it's a little exhausting to tap the Apple II community to donate prizes every month, and, two, we actually don't get as many entries into the contest as we hope every month. Uh, Which means that if you do enter, your odds of winning are quite good. But we also want to make sure that we're 
putting effort into a segment that a majority of our listeners are partaking of. And we're not confident that that's been the case yet. So maybe if we give us some time off and then bring it back, it'll have some renewed focus. Maybe if you give us some feedback on how we can adapt this segment to be more attractive and to get more people to enter, uh, we certainly would appreciate hearing from you. If you missed the segment, let us know that too. Even if you didn't enter, maybe you just enjoyed, you know, trying to figure out what the game was, even if you didn't actually let us know what your guess was. But the Open Apple Podcast is an evolving product, and we look forward to continuing to make it a better show, whatever that might look or sound like. As for me, it is nearing midnight here, which is not a problem either of you have, but I know that I'm not going to turn into a pumpkin, but my speech is going to grow even less coherent. Than <laughs> yeah, we've been recording for almost three hours now. Yeah, well, you guys have. I am going to go crawl into bed and save the editing for another time. I think this show will uh, be out sometime before Thanksgiving. Hopefully. American Thanksgiving, I should point out. We do have Canadian listeners. One. <laughs> if we're Sorry. lucky, yeah. yeah. Hello, Carrington. Man. <laughs> But Melissa, we very much appreciate having you on the show. But no, I mean, it was great to meet you at Kansas Fest last year. We're, I'm so glad that you, along with all your first-time classmates from Kansas Fest 2010, came back in 2011. Will we see you at Kansas Fest 2012? Uh, that's the plan. So Sweet. Yeah. Great. I can't wait. We should maybe like conscript you to create custom tapestries to give to each keynote speaker commemorate him like forget those expensive plaques that we get every year we're just giving yeah. tapestries i don't know if, if things work out you know within the next couple of months i am looking at machines where i can make fabric well knitted fabric but we'll see if i can get the money for them i was actually going to ask about that because that, that that steve you know the the steve jobs rendering uh in applesoft basically i think would look, look pretty awesome as a, as one of your uh tapestries yeah it probably would, actually. Yeah, we'll see. I know there's knitting machines out there that I'm interested in that are, depending on what you can get on eBay, range from like 400 to to 1000 bucks. Wow. Yeah. It sounds a lot nicer than forty grand. So, so. Yeah. Yeah, I know you mentioned the challenges that you would face with creating these products to be sold, but if you had the means to take custom orders, kind of like Ben Heck does with hardware, and you were to put this stuff on like Etsy or something, I think that would be phenomenal and would sell like hotcakes. Yeah. And I would be one of your first customers. Yeah, yeah me too. I think you'd make a lot of money at that. Yeah, I should uh, look into that then. Yeah, we would support you. Not that you're completely motivated by money or anything. <laughs> well, money is always nice. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, if you ever land on Kickstarter, drop us a note and we'll plug it up and down the show. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Cool. Well, thank you for being on the show. We uh, look forward to seeing you at KFest 2012. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Any parting shots? No. <laughs> <laughs> She's too nice to have a party. She show. is. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for coming on, Melissa. Thanks. Have a good night for the two of you, and I'll talk to you in a month. Yep. We'll see you all later. Good night. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. And I'm going to play some sound effects. Okay. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs>
I didn't actually mean to do that. This is not a porno. 